Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 115 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. On the show today, my longtime friend Chris S. shares his story of a relatively happy and contented life until alcoholism landed him in AA at the age of 48. Unlike many in the rooms of AA who grew up in dysfunctional families where alcoholism and abuse riddled their formative years, Chris describes his childhood and adolescence as idyllic. Despite drinking in college and later in the Navy, Chris's adulthood was largely unscathed by his drinking. While he managed to marry, raise a family, and build a successful career, his relatively moderate use of alcohol slowly escalated into full-blown abuse by his 40s. Drinking with greater frequency and ferocity, he sought to hide the growing disease, but with waning effect. By the time Chris's employer confronted him on his drinking, his career was in serious trouble and his marriage was strained. To save both his livelihood and his family, Chris entered AA. He immediately and enthusiastically embarked on a program that became integrated into every facet of his life. The charmed life he had been living until alcoholism took the helm was reinvigorated by his work in AA, and he now claims the happiest years of his life have been in sobriety. I've had the blessing to know Chris since we first got sober six weeks apart over 35 years ago, and the privilege to attend literally thousands of meetings with him over the years. My relationship with Chris exemplifies the brother in brotherhood, and I'm grateful to share his cheerful approach to the program and his optimism for a future of contented sobriety. So please sit back and enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my close friend and AA brother, Chris S. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Chris. I'm so glad you could join me today on AA Recovery Interviews podcast. I've been looking forward to this since I first started the podcast. I'm so glad that you and I were able to go to a meeting today and then come in here and do this. So I want to thank you for that. Well, my thanks to you, Howard. I think it's a great project, and I just was kind of waiting till the timing was right. And this seems like the right time. It does, and I, I think that's the way it goes with our lives as recovering alcoholics. Things happen when they happen or when they're supposed to happen, which is always good. Our relationship is unlike any other that I have in recovery because you and I got sober within about a month and a half of each other back in 1988. And there's your 35-year chip. That's beautiful. But what was interesting about it is that of anybody I know today, there are so few of the people around that I got sober with, but you're one of the people. And you and I used to go to that Sunday night meeting together. And we've been going to that meeting ever since, and that's been 35 years. And your sobriety date is? February 14th, 1988. Valentine's Day. What was there about Valentine's Day that made you want to come in on Valentine's Day of all days? It's interesting. I have a great deal of love for my wife. Mm. I've been married now almost 55 years. Wow. She was the fulcrum getting me into AA. Not that she was wanting me to join AA, but I knew that if I didn't do something about my drinking, I would lose her. Hmm. And I was terribly concerned about that. And I was nostalgic about the, the love that I had for her and mm -hmm. whatnot. And uh, Valentine Day loomed on the horizon of 1988, and I just made up my mind that was going to be the day, and that I was doing this for her, for our relationship, for everything that, that I cared about, hmm. which she was the only thing, the only thing I cared about more than alcohol. So that became a commitment going hand in hand with Valentine's Day, you know, the expression of love. The dual significance is not lost, I think, on anybody who considers the fact in your life, 55 years married, I'm married 36 years, and it was the same thing. That's one of the reasons why I think you and I connected so closely. What do you remember about your, your earliest days of recovery? From, let's say, the first time you went to AA, what was that like for you? 
the first time was at a meeting out at, at Holy Name on a Wednesday night. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was every, everybody was smoking everywhere at that time. So I think we were smoking out there. They were smoking out there. I didn't smoke. But uh, I put up with the smoke. And I went to that meeting, went through that door out there, which I still look at that door with some reverence because if they ever tear the place down, I want that door. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the door I came through. Yeah. Um, and I came through with some trepidation, looking around to see if there's anybody in there that would could possibly know me. You know, uh -huh. I think, oh my God, they'd see me here. And uh, I sat down. I remember exactly the seat I sat down in. And I looked around with a sense of anticipation, but also, uh, as I said, uncomfortableness uh, kind of about being there. And I think the whole thing centered around the final admission that I was an alcoholic and that I better do something about it. Hmm. But in that very first meeting, I listened to some people. There was a Catholic priest in front of me, which I, I thought was unusual. I didn't think Catholic priests got drunk. I didn't think Jews got drunk mm -hmm. because they were of a higher order of, of some <laughs> kind sure. of religiosity, which, <laughs> which I, I apparently didn't have as an Episcopalian. Uh -huh. So anyway, uh, these people started talking and they seemed to be having kind of a good time being there. And they started talking about their situations. And every time one spoke, some element of what he said made sense to me. And I thought, mm. yeah, these guys are going, have gone through something that I'm going through now. And look, they they're seem to be coming out on the other side. Mm. That's amazing. And that meeting is still going on to this day. Absolutely. And I still go out there every now and then on Wednesday night. What was there about AA that made that the place you went uh, when you got sober as opposed to going to a treatment center or to a, a psychologist or a therapist or some other program? It's funny you should ask that because my father-in-law was a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And he told me one time that he could not make any progress with anybody who was still actively drinking. Hmm. If they had given up their alcohol, even for a short period of time, he could begin to make some inroads. And so that's, that always stuck with me. And so the reason I chose the retreat center and the, the meeting out there was that it was available. It had been recommended to me by the guy who became my sponsor, who was actually the, my sponsor that night. It was accessible and, and immediate. I didn't feel like I, right then I needed to go away for a month, uh, though it probably would have been a good thing. But I thought this, this might, I might be able to do this with this, with this as, a, as the beginning point. Did you experience any kind of withdrawal or anything to the alcohol, doing it on your own? I think I did. Uh, I, I know that I experienced a sugar imbalance that was amazing to me mm -hmm. because at that point I'd been drinking. I mean, I drank all day long mm -hmm. in, into the night, so I was really generating a lot of sugar. And when I, when I quit, I noticed that I started, I had an enormous sweet tooth. And a withdrawal, the craving was there, definitely. Definitely. Mm. I craved alcohol. I craved alcohol when I got up in the morning. I wanted to have a beer or a drink, and certainly by noon, I was ready to and already drinking something, uh, hard liquor. What was your expectation about that when you came into AA? I mean, you went to a meeting, you went to meetings, but then you were still having the cravings. What, what kind of expectations did you have about that being gone by a certain point? Another good question. Uh, I think my expectations were not well formed because I didn't know enough about AA. Mm. But I do know that I quickly started patting myself on the back. <laughs> if I got if I got uh, 30 days, I thought, well, they're not doing well, mm -hmm. and I I probably don't need this anymore. Or without verbalizing it, I would be in the company of some of the people that I used to drink a lot with, and I'd think, well, hell, maybe one beer, I'll have a beer, mm -hmm. or this or that. So I didn't research that aspect of it. And I don't know if it would have been a good thing or not a good thing, because if I'd known how difficult it was to give up the craving, it would have seemed like to me at the time, as we know we rationalize everything, mm -hmm. then, that I probably shouldn't even try it at all. Just what the hell, keep on going. Mm -hmm. But I was so desperate and I was so absolutely bereft of any kind of uh, other inspiration that, that whatever AA offered me seemed like the thing to do. Mm. And so I got 30 days and then I, I, I slipped and then I got 60 days and then I did it again. Mm. But when I got a nine month chip, I said to myself, my goodness, I said, you've been sober now for nine months. You can surely do it one more day. 
Hmm. And then the next day and the next day and so forth. So that didn't happen until you hit nine months. What kind of things were you telling yourself at 30 days or 60 days that made you think you would be able to stay sober, but then you slipped? That's, that's an, you're asking some excellent questions. I'm not quite sure. I, I think that I was uh, fooling myself, as, I, as we all did and do, mm-hmm. uh, at least until we get some semblance of sobriety, into thinking that here's what it probably was, was that I'd gone 30 days or 60 days or whatnot. So that seemed to indicate that I could control my drinking. Being able to control my drinking said, well, then I don't have a problem. Mm. And that at whatever moment I was, wherever I was, with whomever I was, having one drink then or one beer or two beers then would be an okay thing because I knew I could go back to sobriety again Hmm. later. I mean, maybe the next day. Yeah. So I rationalized it that way. Yeah. That's, That's a common thread, though. And what's interesting is that the very act of stopping drinking for a certain amount of time is enough for us to self-convince that we don't have a problem. So we take one drink and then, you know, it's that endless do loop, right? That's it. That's precisely it. So by the time you hit nine months, you had finally gotten to the point where you could look ahead at what the next day might be and how you would get through it if you continued to do the right things versus looking back, thinking about how much time you had and how it proved whatever it was proving to you. Well said. Yes, I could do that. And and in equal measure. And I did even at that early stage, I looked back at how my life had improved so dramatically in those nine months. Hmm. My thinking was was clear. My relationships were clear. My resentments were fading. My sense that I was in control had largely gone. Mm -hmm. Those were the bad things that had gone. What had come into my life by that time was a higher power. I had a higher power that was doing things for me that I couldn't do for myself. And then the fellowship. Oh, the fellowship and the readings and the camaraderie and all of that, of course. Before you stopped drinking over the years, at what point did you realize that you had a problem that you might need to stop? Oh, Howard, I I, I realized that probably a year after my first drink (laughs) at, at 18. No, seriously. I had my first drink, I think the night I graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. And it really felt good. Boy, that I'm on to something. You know, this is really wonderful. And it continued to be wonderful. And then probably a year or two or three into that, I began to think, wow, this is wonderful, but I don't think I have control over this. Hmm. Then I went to college. And then during college, I drank a lot. And sometimes I drank till I was out of control. I remember one terrible night with some people in the car with me. And I was driving and I was thinking, I... I I'm, I might have a collision here and kill somebody, hmm. you know. And so I was thinking that, that I'd lost control and I was probably an alcoholic, say, certainly in college. So you, you knew that back then. And I, I want to visit that in a little more detail in a few minutes. But how often and in what ways did you express to your wife that you were going to stop prior to your actually stopping? Was it a was it was something that you were telling her repeatedly or was uh, had things just gotten to a head that you had to stop when you did? Not once did I say anything to her. I was doing all of the soul-seeking and remorseful f- things internally, just eating my own lunch. Mm-hmm. And one day we were down at Galveston, and we liked to go to Galveston, and we were on the beach. It was a pretty day. And what I was doing was... This was during the period I was trying to get sober, mind you, from, from say, day one. That is, And I was drinking. I had sneaked down there kind of in a cooler, some of these little wine coolers. Do you remember they used to have little tin cans of different kinds of wine? And so I was sitting there, and I had the thing behind me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I was when she wasn't looking, I'd take a, a swallow of that. Now, I'd never told her that I was going to quit drinking. Hmm. But, I, but I was thinking I was going to taper off that way, you know? Yeah. And so... I set the can down, and she turned and looked at me with the most direct look. And she said, and I quote, You know, I like you a lot better when you don't do that. Huh. Those words, those simple words, I, I like you a lot better when, I, when you don't do that, just went straight to my heart like a dagger. And I said, It's irrefutable. You know, here it, here it comes. And so at that point was when I said, I'm really going to do something about this. So I never told her I was going to do something about it until 
probably after I'd been in my first first or second AA meeting. So after that period of time, you had 30 days, but then you slipped. During the time when you were sober until you slipped, either at the 30-day point or when you got to 60, before you got to the nine months, did you sense disappointment from her or were you, how were you feeling about yourself at that point? You, you stayed sober, you hit 30 days and then damn it, I'm back to doing it again. Was there a point at which you felt like you might give up or what, what, what was that like with you and your wife? Mm, that was that's well said. No, I didn't feel like I was going to give up. I felt terribly self disappointed, of course, uh-huh. and probably resolved to to try it again because I quickly would do it. I didn't go off and binge for another month or another week or anything. I, I got I kind of got back to it within a t- couple of days. Talked to my sponsor about it, and a uh, couple of days, and got back on the horse again. What did he say to you? He was a very mild-mannered guy, and, did, and, and anything he had to say was sort of uh, mild, quiet encouragement. He, he, and, and frankly, he didn't bring a lot to the table in terms of AA traditions or steps or all that stuff. I, I'll tell you right now, I, have, I had been sober years before I ever went through the steps with anybody. So he moved away, and then he died. And then I got another sponsor, and I just acted like, with to this second sponsor that, well, I, you know, I'm now sober for 15, 20 years. I, and he just took it for granted that I'd gone through the steps, but I hadn't. So it wasn't until much later in your sobriety in the program that you actually faced doing the steps. Correct. That's interesting. And some people get them done real quick. Some of it has to do with the encouragement of a sponsor. Right. And it's always a little frustrating when they're spending all their time with us. And we know that we're not doing what they say to do. And we get carried away with the idea of, well, now that he doesn't know, he can't know, and then builds, doesn't it? That's exactly right. It did build. And the, when I finally did do it, go through the steps, I did it with the guy that you know yeah. in the program and who is very critical. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was kind of funny because he kept looking at me like, I can't believe it. This guy's sitting here, <laughs> been sober 30 plus years, and he's just now going through the steps. Yeah. And that's something. People looking at you sober and the service work you're doing, it's real easy to assume that people have worked the steps, mm-hmm. you know, just by the way we see them acting. And to me, you've always struck me as a man who was very confident in his sobriety and very much attuned to the needs of others with regard to sobriety. I've seen you reach out to help a lot of people along the way. And, uh, and you've been a remarkable friend to me. And yet if somebody told me, and I already knew what you just told me, but if somebody at that time had said, do you know that Chris hasn't done a fourth step yet? I'd say, no way. Well, it's funny you would say that because I think, and it's very kind of you, I think I actually did a fourth and fifth step along the way yeah. in, in an irregular fashion. And uh-huh. as much as I, I absorbed what everybody else was doing and I understood how the fourth step worked. Yeah. Uh, so without formalizing it, I think I integrated that into my thinking. And then the fifth step, I did a lot of, uh, I've done a lot of sort of mini confessions along the way. And, and in reaching out and asking for help, I was saying to somebody, uh, I need help on this. So yeah. the program was at work, whether I was working it perfectly or not. Now, did the Episcopalians have um, confession? In a limited sort of way. It's not, it's not handled the way the Catholics do, but, but the, the priests are available at any time to have a one-on-one. And in fact, I'll tell you, at the end of it, right here in this church, at the conclusion of the service, there is always a priest at the rail uh, up front, ready, willing, and wanting anybody to come up and and talk to them. So if you have something on your mind in the nature of a confession, you can do it right then and there in total privacy. I mean, you're out and the people can see you go up there, but they don't hear what you're saying. Over the years, how did you handle situations where the question of have you worked the steps actually came up. Good point. I think what what happened was I did work the steps. Yeah. One, two, and three, and and then six, seven, eight, nine, and on. It was four and five that I didn't do anything about in, in a meaningful fashion. You know, you might say, well, that's that's not justification for what you did. But I never said I, I did a fourth step or a fifth step, or I didn't. I just didn't. Kind of didn't address it. Kind of glossed over it, yeah. And that's, that, that's not right. That's illegitimate. But, but I did it. 
it sounds like you were able to do what it was you needed to do to be able to stay sober. Yeah, and I'm not recommending it as a, as a th practice, but I'm saying that I think I did the first three steps so ardently. Mm. By that time, it truly turned my life and will over to the power of God as I knew him and understood him, that I was firmly committed to the program. Mm -hmm. and, and, I, and I did internalize and literally go over the fourth step of my, you know, my mm -hmm. failings without having done the fifth step, which is, that's the real step where you, you, you tell another human being, you know, and I didn't do that. So that was a failing. So you kind of knew, you knew deep inside. Did that fact ever get in the way of what you were doing in the program? Was the, the fact that you hadn't done it to whatever satisfaction or completion that you felt was necessary, did that ever stand in the way of, let's say, sponsoring somebody or somebody comes up to you after a meeting and says, hey, Chris, I'm having a problem with the fourth step. Can you help me? Uh, another good question. I think not. Uh, I think to a small degree, if any, any. I just blithely went on saying, well, to myself, I've done a fourth step and I've never formalized it with a fifth step. And I went right on. Uh, and I would help people and I would listen. There. And, oh, I had a long uh, involvement with a guy who was really thorough about his fourth step and really thorough, and I was, of course, on the fifth step, and um, it, it didn't come into play. I just, I was just listening to him, guiding him where I could and so forth, and I, it didn't bother me. It's probably hypocrisy at its greatest, but it didn't. <laughs> I think if I had not been so introspective and so conscientious about the program and, and all its aspects, that it would have been somewhat shameful, but I was really committed to the program. I, I looked at it as something maybe I inconveniently hadn't taken care of or something rather than a major flaw. Yeah, I get that. When you were doing your fourth step and fifth step with this sponsor all these years later, what was the feeling after that process? That, that it was kind of the second time I'd done it, really. Yeah. True. I thought these things have, have not been lurking in my soul the way they did early on. Right. I've expunged them by facing them, by working my way through them, by praying through them and so forth. Uh -huh. So it was like a recitation of an old story. That's interesting. I think what happens is that we all remember certain things from early on in our sobriety. And one of my earliest memories in sobriety over the past 35 years is something you said to me after a meeting that we went to or maybe it was when you shared in the meeting. It was one, one way or the other. I can't remember exactly how it went. But I remember when you said it to me, it, it had a response that left me feeling, how can that possibly be true? And what you said was, you had a good childhood. And at that point, in my own sobriety, I, of course, was blaming my childhood for everything because I had an abjectly abusive, violent upbringing in my house. I remember your response to me when I told you that. You were a little incredulous, too, because my first thought was, how is it possible he became an alcoholic? Because I just kind of equated terrible, miserable, dysfunctional childhoods as being the driver of the disease. When you look back at your childhood, and I'm assuming looking back right now, you still consider it a good childhood? Mm-hmm. Uh, did it ever leave you wondering how you could become an alcoholic? Oh, yeah. I, I know exactly how I became an alcoholic. I'll lay some off to genetics, but my, neither of my parents drank. Not only did they not drink much, but they never drank to excess. Hmm. They would have a cocktail every now and then, and, and I'd be aware of that. And, and they didn't discourage me. Mm -hmm. But what I grew up with was an untreated Napoleonic complex. I was short. I was outgoing, but I, and I was a popular person, but I never felt like I quite lived up to my father, mm. who never lorded over me. He never made any disparaging remarks. My mother was a little bit critical here and there, but she always thought I was the blessed child. I was a middle child between two sisters. And what I did, Howard, I made myself into an alcoholic. I drank that first beer, and I thought this was really feeling good, and I continued to do that until I was 48 years old. Well, really, I continued to do it until I was about 35 or 40 when I realized the horse was out of the barn and I was in bad trouble. Right. But I was a self-made alcoholic. My childhood was idyllic, I promise you that, hmm. and remained so until the day both my parents died. I mean, I was just, life was good. We, I was in an upper middle class family in a small town in Oklahoma, a nice high school, just nothing intruded in any upsetting way. 
When you think back to how you looked at the people around you and maybe the people who you were drinking with at that time, who would have come out of families like the kind of family I came out of, what did you think about that? Huh. That's really interesting because there were a few of them. I thought it was unfortunate that that, had, that was happening to them mm-hmm. and sort of in, a, in my own way quite thankful it wasn't happening to me. Mm. But from that point on, I just blew it off as I did a lot of things because the alcohol completely dominated by that time, dominated my sense of sensitivity that, that, that I should take note of that and, and thank God I wasn't and do something about it, you know, things yeah. like that. It, it became the anesthesia for the rest of my life. Yeah, became a source of relief. Yeah. So for me, alcohol and drugs were a source of relief for the way I was feeling about myself as a way to kind of blot out some of the really horrible things from earlier in life. When you look at your own alcohol use at that time, uh, gaining relief, the question, I guess, in my mind is relief from what? It wasn't so much gaining relief as it was bringing a new sense of joy and exuberance into my life. Uh-huh. It, was, it was all positive. It was po- I could say things and get away with it. I could do uh, amoral things and get away with it. I could lie and get away with it. Uh-huh. I probably stole in one way or another. In other words, it enabled me to do these things. I wasn't fleeing from anything. I was reaching out and finding a new uh, pleasure. So you were embellishing your life. Right, and my stories. Your stories. Exactly. Well, I think if anybody's going to drink and become an alcoholic, that's the way to do it. I'm serious. <laughs> you know, I mean. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't waste a minute <laughs> lamenting my past. I was out there in the, you know, the world gathering all these new experiences. Now, when you were younger, maybe in grade school or middle school or high school, what kind of opportunities to drink came into your life that you turned down or were you, did you just not have those opportunities? No, I never had them. Actually, we created opportunities to drink. We would steal liquor from our, our parents' liquor locker and fill the bottle back up with water. Mm-hmm. We would uh, get somebody to buy beer for us. Somebody would provide a keg at a party sometimes. These were all opportunities to drink. I see. Now, you said earlier that you hadn't really started to drink until you were 18. So that would have been about the time you were going off to one of the Ivy League schools. I'm wondering whether, to what degree, that contributed to your starting to drink at that point. I think it it contributed to it to the degree that that alcohol became much more available, of course. Uh Uh-huh. And that I joined a fraternity where they actually had a bar. Oh, my God. And the the university, (laughs) the university had a theory that, well, it was better that they were drinking in in the bar in this quasi-controlled environment than just out in some bar out in town where they could get into trouble. And so beer was served, even though the state law was against it, beer was served to uh, minors. So you had the opportunity. Had the opportunity. At 18. And then by that time, I remember a famous party that I was the party chief of. We, we did a Roman toga party. Uh-huh. I concocted this drink and I used, instead of using all of the money for punch, I took half of it and bought grain alcohol and oh. made this horrendously potent punch that got everybody drunk. So it, it was building. It was building by that time. Yeah, I remember those kind of parties when I was in college, too. The, the, you get a, like a trash can or something. Everybody brings a certain, and, and, and then at the end of the night, it tastes, you know, it starts to taste like high C, but a lot of times grain alcohol was part of the mix. Right. And people got violently drunk and <laughs> violently sick. I want to tell you a funny little story. The theme of this party was a Roman toga party, and it, and it was a tradition in, the, in this part of this college that I went to. And so people would come dressed in Roman togas, and the idea was to take a sheet and make a toga out of it, but to have as little underneath as possible. <laughs> and so the day following that party, the, the headmaster of the college that I was in called me in, and he was a very prim fellow, and he sat me down and he said in no uncertain terms, this was awful last night. One of the deans of the college attended your party and was sitting next to a couple, and he said they were fornicating oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> under their togas. Oh, I mean, he meant it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he told you just watch out in the future? Well, it was more than that. Oh. It was, you're skating on thin ice here. Yeah. Mm. 
So that, that was one of the early consequences that you uh, experienced with drinking? Oh, I would say that maybe that was one of the highlights. One of the highlights, <laughs> yeah, I get it, I get it. I didn't really start drinking until I w went off to college, too, and uh, because the girlfriend I had in high school didn't want me to drink, so I mm. just didn't. But boy, when I got to college and all bets were off, I, I went at it full steam, full speed, and I was drinking and using marijuana with people who were really into doing it. But they also were very smart, affable, likable people. And there was nothing about their behavior that I didn't want to emulate. And that made it even worse because I was not only feeling good about feeling good from the alcohol, but it was also making me become the kind of guy I wanted to. Right, and mixing with the people you wanted to mix with. How did drinking and, and that affect your use scholastically? Did it get in the way of anything for you? Yeah, I think it did. Uh, that was a C student when I could have been a B or a B plus student. Really? Yeah, because I would. the weekends were spent drinking or fooling around or going to girls' colleges or, or whatnot. This was an all-men's college that I went to. And, and even during the week, I'd, I'd, I'd be studying and I'd say, well, I feel like having a beer. And I'd go across the street to the fraternity and have a beer. Or I'd be playing uh, bridge uh -huh. at the bar in the fraternity when I should have been back in my room studying which was too bad. And, and then there were courses that I should have taken that I didn't take, uh, I think, because I thought I would have to study too hard. Did you acknowledge a connection between the drinking and the behavior with the grades that you were receiving? No. Completely rationalized the whole thing. Never thought about it. So you should get good grades irrespective of the other things you were doing. That's the thinking, right? Kind of, yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was really, really rather sad. As I look back, you know, they say we don't want to forget the things that we did or shut the, nor shut the door on them. Right. And that's one of the things I think about from time to time was that I let myself and I let my parents and I let the, the educational system down by not taking full advantage of it. I had somewhat the same experience. I, my grades were actually quite a bit higher than that, but I went to a state school and, and I got out with a maybe a 3.5 or, or better grade point average, but all that proved to me that I was that I could drink and, and, and achieve. But one of the greatest problems I had was that a lot of my major decisions were made under the influence. Hmm. So as other people were thinking about what they wanted to do either for postgraduate work or out in the business world or whatever they were doing, while they were making plans and trying to support those plans with good ideas, I was just vegging out and just, you know, I'll get to that. All I want to do is graduate so I can get a job, get money, and continue to do my lifestyle that I got going here in college with unimpeded by anything that's in the way right now. And years later, I thought to myself, you know, I had some decisions that I, had I been lucid at the time, my life might have gone in an entirely different direction. But so many of the things that I thought made sense, they would make sense to somebody who's drunk and stoned. But to uh, somebody who's lucid and sober, probably not. Yeah, I think that happened to me on a, on a smaller scale. Yeah. Decisions I made were more about things I didn't do or course of paths I didn't take. Mm -hmm. Not major ones. I had a charm life. Yeah. Uh, and, and the decisions I made to go in the Navy and then go to graduate school after that and to come back to Houston and take a job, those weren't affected by my decision-making. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So when, when you graduated, you went into the Navy... I'm assuming Navy life has a lot of alcohol and a lot of drinking in it. Terrific amount. None aboard ship. That's the difference between us and the British Navy. We don't drink aboard ship, and that was, at least in my ship and most of the ones I know about, was pretty 
strictly adhered to. Yeah. Not no alcohol. But when you got liberty and hit the beach, all bets were off. Huh. And as a bachelor, uh, and I was a bachelor for all this time. Uh, good God, on the, our behave, my behavior on the beach was to drink as much as I could and wanted in the officers' club. Drinks were twenty-five cents a piece, mm -hmm. and then go out in town. If we we're in Japan, say go out in town and eat in a Japanese restaurant and drink all the sake they could, and then find a good uh, Japanese lady who was so inclined and take off with her for the night, and then make damn sure we were back at the fleet landing in time to take the boat back to the ship. Yeah, and as long as you weren't drinking on the ship or getting in trouble in town, let's say. Precisely, all that was, was condoned. All of that was uh, condoned. So it sounds to me like that type of experience was a good setup for binge drinking, being sober while you're out at sea on the boat, and then once you come in, you just binge. I didn't think of it that way. I, I think that, that what, what being sober on the ship uh, was just a, an interruption into a solid drinking pattern. Huh. Because we were at sea, well, for instance, we were going from San Francisco to uh, Pearl Harbor took a week, and then if we were going down to Guam, it took two more weeks. So for two, for, for but in between we had Hawaii. Oh. <laughs> so it was two weeks at sea going to Guam. Then we'd get down there, and there was an officers club down there. Uh, I didn't, I didn't think it was a binge. I just quietly bided my time and then went after it again. Would you have considered yourself alcoholic at that point? Yes. I would have considered myself alcoholic, but an alcoholic among other less alcoholic drinkers. That is to say, I didn't stand out. Uh, I, I made every duty call. I made every promotion. I made everything else. But but I was an, a, clearly an alcoholic. My behavior and my inclination to drink was clearly an alcoholic. Did you ever take any pride in your ability to consume alcohol or the, the things you did while you were drinking, the stories that you were later on to be able to talk about? Well, yeah, I incorporated them into my, <laughs> uh, how shall I say, storytelling, my, my regaling people. And people love to hear those stories. They love sea stories even to this day. Uh -huh. So there were things that went on. <laughs> I'll tell you one, for instance. Yeah. One night, and my captains, by the way, two, two captains, one in particular, were big drinkers. Mm. First captain was the biggest drinker. So he liked me. He took a shine to uh -huh. me. We, we were, we, even though we were separated widely in rank and, and in terms of deference to his captaincy, mm -hmm. we'd hit the beach together every now and then. And one night we hit the beach in Yokosuka, Japan. Mm -hmm. And we went, we got plenty of li liquored up in, in the officer's club and we went on the beach. And then we went to a hot sea bath, we called it, a place where they, and you could take hot sea baths and then you could go off with a woman. Yeah. And uh, we did that. Uh -huh. And then we, we somehow recovered and we, and we got back on board ship. And um, the next morning he called me up. We were still in port. We were anchored out, by the way. This was an ammunition ship, so we couldn't come alongside the pier. We were anchored out. So he called me into his quarters, which was at about 8.15 in the morning, which is kind of unusual. Uh -huh. He said, I've got a mission for you. I want you to go back in and retrieve my calling card. He said, it's, he said, it's, it's pinned above the bed in that woman's. So he, he sent me in using his gig, his personal. Oh gig. And I went in and I, and I got to the beach and got a taxi cab and, and went. It was still there. Oh yeah. Wow. And little. You know, what's her name was just, she said, oh, you're, you're Captain, very nice, man, very nice man. I said, thank you very much. And I took his car. And of course, that was gold because when I got back to the captain at an appropriate moment, I came up to him. I said, sir, I think this is yours. <laughs> he loved me. Oh, that's great. So you got out of the Navy. You're still drinking. You're, you're, you're getting along okay. You, you said you went to college at that point or graduate school? Went back to graduate school, took an MBA. So how old are you at this point? I was about probably 27. Okay, so you still have another 21 years to go before you get sober. Mm. How would you describe that period of your life? I would describe it as a very pleasant, interesting, informative time where I enjoyed life enormously, made a lot of friends, had some great experiences. Mm -hmm pleasurable experiences. I, I liked girls and girls seemed to like me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't married. To give you an example, I had a 
a relationship with a woman that lasted seven years mm. in that period and never came to marriage. So life was pretty good. My mother, as I said, did I led a charmed life, and I think I did. Yeah, well, it sounds like it. To what degree did alcohol influence those years? Positively. Really? Oh yeah, I was I was doing things and daring things and getting into things that I would never have done had I been sober. And dangerously and recklessly, I might add. I mean, it wasn't something I would wish on anybody. But while I was doing it, it was, it was a lot of fun. Hmm. So somebody listening to you talk about your life and about your story could say, gee whiz, I can do what I want until I get to be maybe 40, 45, and then I can get sober. No, I would say absolutely not. And I do not want my story to lead anybody to believe that. Right. If I could take it all back, first place, I'd have never had that first drink at 18. Right. But having taken that first drink at 18, by the time I was, say, 21 and realizing I was drinking more than anybody else around me to excess, if I could have stopped then, I would have had a different and hard to say better life, but I would have uh, not exposed myself to that kind of uh, reckless behavior and wish I hadn't. Yeah, and, and I get that. And I've interviewed some other people who got sober much later than you did, but who lived relatively normal lives and what they would consider to be pretty happy lives until the alcohol really started to get in the way. Well, that's it, Howard. The alcohol really started to get in the way, say, in the last 10 years of my existence, mm -hmm. causing me problems at work, beginning of problems at home. Mm -hmm causing great remorse on my part, great self-disappointment. So that part was, was a very un, unpleasant and unhappy result and an absolute given to what I was doing before. When you think about the relationships that you had with your wife and your kids during those years, that those charmed years, let's say, um, was there ever anything about your behavior that you would at, at the time attribute to having had too much to drink? Yes. Oh, so? Well, I would uh, do selfish things, self-aggrandizement, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, well, my wife and I were talking about this recently. I would come home. She didn't know it, but I would have a drink or two on the way home. Mm -hmm. And then when I'd get there, I'd have dinner with her and the kids, which, which was usually delayed because I didn't get there on time, mm -hmm. at least delayed for me. And then I'd have a drink or two at home and a glass of wine. And then I'd go to bed, go to sleep. So I'd be in bed by 9 or 9.30. Hmm. And I wasn't, any, I wasn't contributing anything to the marital camaraderie and joy of being together. Mm -hmm. And so alcohol was definitely uh, impacting that. How about your relationship with your, with your kids during that time? I've been over this with them. When I did the uh, ninth step with them, I talked about that as candidly as I could and asked pointed questions about it. And they said, oh, you're all right, Dad. Uh, I was never abusive. And, but they said, you could lose your temper quicker. Mm -hmm. You lost your temper quicker. And sometimes you weren't around, meaning I was in bed asleep or something else. So most of the child raising was left to your wife. Though she, to this day, gives me great credit for time spent doing that, for instance, in, in the sports that they played or in helping with, with homework and all that. So there, there were good things going on. So you were working, you were able to get through your, your career to that point, uh, still being able to drink whenever you wanted to, not necessarily on the radar, on anybody's radar as an alcoholic. Until the last, and then, then I was. When did the wheel start to fall off? The wheel started to fall off, it was about a uh, five-year decline. They started to fall off when I had a, had trouble with a boss that I had and who called me into his office one day and said, you've got a drinking problem. Hmm. Uh, because what I had done was on a ski trip to his ski lodge, I had gotten out of hand and actually flipped one of the other <laughs> guys backwards in a chair. Oh, and yeah, I flipped him out of the chair and we kind of tussled on the floor and whatnot. Anyway, the boss called me in and said, you're, you're drinking too much. You've got to do something about your drinking. And so that brought it home that, you know, I was in trouble. So what did I do? I got another job. <laughs> I did. I did. It wasn't a geographic cure, but it was a career cure. And I got it hired at a higher price and, and for a guy. And I worked for him for five years. What were you thinking when you decided to get another job? What I thought was they're, they're on to me. They're on to me. They've discovered what a 
failure I can be or could be. So I just better get out of here and start anew someplace else. I was going to go out on my own and do something entirely different, which I did in an, in an entrepreneurial way. I could not stay in the industry that I was uh -huh. because I, by the, I figured out that I was probably pretty well known for my excess drinking and leaving that second company was a clear sign. Uh -huh. I knew I was self-aware enough to know that I had to get away from alcohol and, and I had to do something on my own. Mm -hmm. So lo and behold, I was sitting in my study at home reading the Wall Street Journal like I was still <laughs> some high muckety-muck and I saw an ad in there for a company that was involved in medical services. Mm -hmm. Totally out of my knowledge and understanding, but they were offering franchises and Houston was one of the cities. Mm. So I was sitting there drinking, you know what schnapps is? Oh yeah. Yeah, well I had a bottle of schnapps in my desk, in my study, because that was the only alcohol left in the house. <laughs> so I'm sipping that schnapps, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal. So I tore this ad out and it had a number in there, it was a California number. Mm -hmm. So I phoned the California number and I got a hold of this person. And uh, I said, I'm interested in your ad in the Wall Street Journal. And I had my feet up on my desk and my bottle of schnapps beside <laughs> me, playing Mr. Big Shot. Uh -huh. And he said very rudely, I think, how come it took you so long to call? <laughs> I said, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I, I, he said, we only put that ad in the Southwest edition every three weeks. So it's been almost three weeks since that ad was in the Wall Street Journal. So why are you taking three weeks to respond? Catching up on your paper reading. And then there's more to that story. I had about $50,000 left of surplus money at that point. I bought the franchise. I went out to California. And by that time, by the time all this was done, it probably another two or three weeks had gone by and I'd, and I'd gotten sober. I mean, at least to say I hadn't had a drink. Mm -hmm. I went out there and paid, gave him a check for 50 grand. And lo and behold, within minutes, one of the staff of the company came out with a tray full of champagne and uh -huh. champagne glasses. Yeah. Uh -huh. And said, good, let's have a toast to this new business, you know. And what did I do? Of course, I drank it. So then... When I got into AA, and, and that was shortly thereafter, God told me that through my sponsor or the program or the guys or whatever, I will not ever give you a heavier load than, than you can carry. Mm -hmm. But I'm giving you a load now that's a twin load. One of them is to get sober, and the second is to make this business a success. Hmm. And as I look back on it, I couldn't have done one without the other. Hmm. I could not have started up that business and, and built it into something without being sober. Hmm. And without the business, I probably wouldn't have had the incentive to get sober. That's an important realization, wasn't it? Hugely important. Hugely important. And I realized that early on, I, within a month of buying that thing, I was back trying to get sober again and starting in the period I told you about the year, probably 19, well, 1987, leading up to the February of 88, the sobriety day. So... In addition to doing this for your wife, there's this other thing going on that you know you're not going to be able to do if you keep on drinking. Exactly. So you had two pretty important things in your life. Which were, in fact, linked because my wife's well-being was linked to my financial well-being, was the whole family and all that. Yeah. Everything was on the line, Howard. Yeah. It was a crapshoot of enormous proportions in terms of me because heretofore I had worked for companies and I've been pretty well rewarded because of what I could do on the sales and marketing side. Right. And now everything's on me. I had employees. I had this money invested. I had to, you know, make a go of it. And you built quite a company for yourself, didn't you? It was reasonable, yeah. And I watched that happen over the years, you know, which is very cool because mm -hmm. you, you and I got to know each other shortly, shortly thereafter. Right. As you look back over the 35 years now that you've been sober, what periods during that sobriety kind of stick out in your mind as pivotal moments, either good or bad, when maybe your program was strained or, or put to the test? Well, that's very interesting. Um, not even in general, totally the program has been good. It's been such a wonderful thing, but I'll give you a few examples of how good and what happened. After I started that business, I began to build up my customer base. So I got the flywheel going, mm -hmm. if you will. 
and I had one very large customer represent 30% of my revenues. Mm -hmm. And through a difficult situation that I won't bore you with the details, the customer walked out on me, literally took the business away, not quite overnight, but shortly. And I was sitting there in my office on a cold December Houston night, feeling very frightened and very concerned about, you know, can I survive? Can this business survive? Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there all by myself and a higher power said to me, you'll make it in, in effect. Mm. And when with that, a warm glow, literally a glow, a feeling of warmth started at the top of my head and flowed down my head and my neck mm. and my shoulders and down my hips and to the floor. And it was a higher power reaching down and touching me and saying, you'll be all right. Stick with it. You'll be all right. So, you know, you talk about your burning bush experience. That was, that was mine. I mean, that was, that was mine. Like spiritual relief. Yo, oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, and I stood up, I'll never forget. I stood up from my desk and I stretched <laughs> my arms out and I was just, I was alive. I was, I, there was electricity. People would write that off who don't know like you and I know how strong this is. That was the big test for me, for my sobriety, perhaps, certainly sure. for my business. And so from that point on, I have been so secure in the knowledge that everything's all right mm -hmm. already, that I've not felt a test. I've never felt like, oh, my sobriety's in danger. I'm really feeling like crap here. I'm going to go back out and have a drink or anything uh -huh. like that. One of the reasons why I do this podcast is because oftentimes when people tell their stories, they spend about... 85% of the time, or maybe 90% of the entire time that they're allotted, let's say 45 to 50 minutes of the hour, they'll spend talking about what it was like and what happened, the very juicy parts of their story. But then let's say they're sober 10 or 20 years, they save that for the last five minutes. And then I got sober and life's been great since. And that's, so what I thought was at the beginning of starting this whole thing was, wait, there's got to be other stuff that happened in the 10, 20, 30 years you've been sober where your sobriety made it a very important contribution to your being able to either get through it or acknowledge it, good and bad. Now, I know you've had some health challenges in the, in the past. I always talk, I like to visit those too. Okay, no question about it. No, what I would say is, as the, as the program teaches us, we'll never be overmatched. Yeah because we've got this. So, so I, would, I would say to you that, yes, I've had those challenges. I had prostate cancer and I've had some other things happen, but I was so grounded and so secure and happy in the program. It had all the answers. And so I was never overmatched by the calamity. I had, I choose to call God on, you know, looking uh -huh. after me. So how could anything bad happen? Things could happen bad, but how could they get out of hand and ruin my life? What a remarkable realization. Yeah. Another thing is, Howard, I was taught I, I don't meddle in other people's business anymore like I used to. I used to love to get in the middle of something, not to stir up shit, but just to get in there and know more about something than anybody else did. I don't do that anymore. I used to be very resentful of people for the for small slights that they didn't even know. I don't do that anymore. I mean, so when I, when I say life has been great, it has been great because of the program, because the program enables me to handle these things that, that used to baffle me. So that kind of stuff happened while you were already sober. You still had some of those feelings of resentments and everything else. So it's more of a growth thing, isn't it? It's a growth thing. You know, you've always struck me as a very calm very centered individual. And I think one of the reasons I was drawn to you early on is because I try to aspire to that level of spiritual confidence. And I think I get it mostly in my head and a certain amount in my heart. You strike me as the kind of person who has a lot of it in your heart right now, but it still influences your thinking in a way that I, I believe is very helpful to other people. What kind of challenges have you faced being of service in the program? I have probably faced the challenge of being a sponsor. I've, I've had the privilege of sponsoring quite a number of people along the way, uh -huh. uh, most of whom uh, I sort of gravitated to or they gravitated to me. And a few of them are recommended by a psychiatrist here and there. But 
the challenge for me was to take myself out of it and let them come to the program. Just like we say, we're, we're in a program, program of attractiveness, not promotion, not to over-promote. Uh, and to hope and pray that these people will get it. That's, that's always been a challenge. And, and of course, sometimes it works just great. And uh, sometimes it doesn't. And Does it do anything for the gut feel when, the, when you see them fail for the first time? It did early on. It was great dis personal disappointment because I thought maybe I'd failed. But then the longer I've been at it, the more it hasn't. And maybe I've gotten a little um, you know, yeah. tough-skinned yeah. about it, too. Because there is something in the book that says, or readings that says, look, if you're, if you're, this guy isn't making it, go on to somebody else. Yeah, don't waste your time. That could be used for somebody else. I get that. It's always a little bit disappointing to me when I talk to men in the program, and, and you and I both know who some of these guys are, who will just openly avow that they don't sponsor men because they've never been successful at it. And I always think the mark of success is not whether they stay sober, but whether you stay sober. Thankfully, there's a lot of other service work that, that people can do. Have you had the opportunity to work with many newcomers recently? Yeah, I'm working with one right now. How's that working? Great. He's unbelievable. He's come around. He's an older guy. He's 57. Mm -hmm. But he has come around to understanding what it takes and where he's been and the journey he's on and so forth. And he's re reached out with both hands and grabbed this program full bore. I think that's wonderful. I know who you're talking about. To be able to have you as his sponsor with the kind of attitude now approach that you have just towards life in general, but also having gone through what you've gone through, I think is a great gift to him and especially to you. Well, we're really enjoying it. This guy is, is a, uh, he's spent time in prison. He's had a life that would say, oh, this guy is not a winner, never will be. He is a winner through the program, and he knows it, and he, he and I talk every day. He is just totally committed. Sounds like he's on fire for the program. He's on fire for the program. And how long has he been sober now? Uh, coming up at the end of this month will be one year. One year. Uh-huh. The facility that he's in, usually the men stay there about a year, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, he's about ready to graduate. They expect for the person who's graduating to have something to go to, you know, when they step out the door. Is he pretty well set for that? Absolutely. He's got a job. He's in the work phase, so he's working a full-time job. He's got an apartment lined up. He's told the apartment people all about his past, that he was a felon, and that he's through recovery and whatnot, and they welcomed him in this apartment. And he has some family here in Houston, which helps. People are giving him things like used furniture and, and so forth. And I am not accustomed to doing this, but I gave him a tool set to use on his job. Everything's coming together, falling together. What's great about it is I can see you light up as you talk about this. <laughs> and I can see that expression of joy in your face and in your countenance. And I, I, wanna, I wanna acknowledge that. Sometimes you wonder, is it really making that big a difference? Well, when I see the way you are right now, I know that it does. And, and he's, he's a good guy. I see him really going out of his way in that meeting to say hi to guys and, and that sort of thing. We've had a lot of guys from, from that particular facility over the years uh, because they bring a couple van loads full of men. And that, you know, that points up the difficulty of staying sober, mm -hmm. for sure, is access to a good meeting and a good, good bunch of guys. And the difference between your background and his background, what has sponsoring him taught you about yourself? I would say it's taught me humility mm -hmm. or an, an additional dose of humility mm. in as much as I know what he went through. I would just die if I had to spend 15 days in prison. He spent 15 years. Mm. So it's taught me once again to be grateful for what I was given as, as a youth the family I had and the opportunity that I had, and to make, in my humble way, uh, as much of a gift of that to him as I possibly can. Yeah, it is a real gift. And I remember when you were sponsoring the, that ex-football player, that was an interesting time for you, wasn't it? Oh, my God. Howard. That's like 20 years ago, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it was about 20 years ago. I won't mention his name, of course, but he was a, a world-renowned football player. And... Uh, a huge guy. He was about six yeah, was five, weighed well over three hundred pounds, and 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 he was a black guy. <laughs> and here I am, this little sawed-off 
white guy running around. But he sought me out. He asked me to be a sponsor. As it turned out, he was not far enough down the road to really be going after a sponsorship relationship to enable him to get sober. He wanted somebody to help him get into the world of business and to help him get some money and a job, as, as it turns out. I mean, and he was terribly beholden to drugs. It was drugs. But I followed him. Uh, he moved out of town. He had a wife who was terrific, and she was, she was a mainstay. I followed him as he left town and on beyond, and he's gotten it. He's been, I think, sober and, and free of drugs for the last 10 or 12 years. Have you talked to him recently? Not directly. Do you ever have a desire to get on the phone and just... Yeah, I might call him up now that you mention it. I remember that. And what did the fact that he was a famous, world-renowned athlete do to the way that you and he interacted with each other? A very good question. Um, I must admit I was probably celebrity-struck by him. And so it's hard to, to look at him and not realize this, this guy is an all-pro, a multi-year all-pro. But once I got past that, he was another human being trying to trying to uh, get to i tell you what happened. After I'd been his sponsor for about a year or two and realized how difficult this was going to be, for instance, I went and retrieved him from a crack house. Oh, boy. He, can, he got in my car, and he was just gibbering, uh, a language I didn't understand, and saying that they were after him, and we had to get out of there, and so on and so on. Just scared the crap out of me. Well, anyway, after about a year of try, working with him where I was quite unsure whether he was going to make it or not, I went to a business meeting in another city, and lo and behold, the speaker was his quarterback, then recently retired. So I went up to him when he went in the bathroom, and I'm standing there at the urinal uh -huh. next to this world-famous quarterback, and I said, i got to ask you a question. And he thought I was going to ask him about how do I throw the football or something. So we walked out of, the, out of the restroom, and I told him the story that I was so-and-so's sponsor, and what could he do. He took me aside, Howard, and all put his arms around my shoulder. He said, God, if you can find any way to save that, uh -huh. I want to know it. We, we tried. He said, I tried. The whole team tried. The owners tried. Everybody tried, and it didn't work, so they had to let him go. Well, actually, he got drummed out of the league because he had failed his third or fourth drug test. But now he's okay. I'm going to call him. I'm going to find him. When this comes out, send him a link to it so he can listen to it. Because I think your story, especially to anybody who knows you but doesn't know your whole story, it'll put your relationship in context with him. And, and what a wonderful thing to be able to do, to, to take a guy and kind of put your fear aside and still do what you could for him. I mean, to me, that's a real sign of strong and let's say contented sobriety, because if there's anything that I notice about you is the contentment that you have in your sobriety. And I, I want to say that you've been a good friend to me for a lot of years. Um, I will admit there were times that I probably should have called you that I didn't when it came to certain business decisions that I made. I think I, I, th I spoke to you about them occasionally your spiritual life i always like to ask people about that oh i'm just on fire with it howard i mean i am so attuned to a higher power and to what the power of god out there working in my behalf uh, in every respect even the smallest thing uh -huh. uh, that it it's around me all the time i think about it when i'm driving i think about it when i'm on the beach when i'm riding my bike it's just there, and I'm not a zealot. I'm not. I wasn't a religious zealot. I'm just so. I'm so serene, knowing that this higher power is truly looking out for me, as He is for you, mm -hmm. and that all I have to do is act half decent and stay the course, and things will be fine. And the cool thing about it is, you're the attraction, not the promotion of this program. Mm -hmm. And I see men attracted to you, and I see how you are in meetings and. Mm -hmm your respect for others. It's admirable. It's something that I would like to aspire to, as I'm sure a lot of men who know you feel that way. Uh, but you've been a great friend to me for a long time, and uh, I honor and bless your sobriety. Being able to be close to you and see you two times a week is very cool. It's really enhanced and enriched my own sobriety and my life in general. And I like to feel that I've got pretty contented sobriety as well. So. Yeah, and let me say back to you, you not only have contented sobriety, but you're able to project 
the good things about this program. And I, and I hear it all the time when either you're talking to the group as you do or in private to somebody. I overhear yeah. what you're saying and I know what you're doing. And this, this business here of, of taking these uh, oral histories is, is a remarkable thing and, and, and a legacy that you're going to leave that nobody else either could or would. You think about that. Yeah, I like to think that if this helps just one or a few people out of everybody who ever listens to it, then my job will be done. But then about two minutes later, my ego comes into it and says, well, why aren't more people listening? And, and if there's so many al alcoholics out there, why aren't more getting it from this? And that's where my ego and my humility butt, butt up against each other. You seem to have a pretty good grasp on that. So you're somebody who I will still be able to learn from. Oh, you're very kind, Howard. Well, Chris, thanks a million for doing this today. I love you. You're, you're one of my best friends. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best in contented, spiritually oriented sobriety from now until whenever. Well, you're kind and you can count on the fact I will be in touch with you as I am, as I do frequently, uh, sometimes on just trivial things about somebody's last name, but, but important issues as well. And I appreciate it. And I appreciate what you've done for me. Well, thanks, Chris. Many thanks. Well, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Chris S., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.